I'm Nina Johnson this week on Making Contact. Making, making, making contact. Making contact. <laughs> The people of this nation have spoken. They've delivered us a clear victory, a convincing victory, a victory for we the people. We've won with the most votes ever cast on presidential ticket in the history of the nation, 74 million. And I'm humbled by the trust and confidence you've placed in me. I pledge to be a president who seeks not to divide, but unify, who doesn't see red states and blue states, only sees the United States. And work with all my heart, with the confidence of the whole people, to win the confidence of all of you. And for that, is what America, I believe, is about. It's about people. And that's what our administration will be all about. I sought this office to restore the soul of America, to rebuild the backbone of this nation, the middle class, and to make America respected around the world again. January 20th marks the day that Joe Biden will be sworn in as the 46th president of the United States. As a new commander-in-chief, Biden will be expected to tackle a multitude of crises within the first few weeks in office. I think he's going to have to be bold about it. Like, he's going to have to come out and talk about what does it mean, how do we um, get this economy going with the stimulus checks, what does it mean to disseminate uh, COVID relief, um, the vaccines for those that are uh, interested in taking it, how is that going to take place? And on day one, how are you going to uh, just actively and aggressively go after those things? Because those are the kitchen table conversations that people are having. And those are the things that people are going to be holding this administration accountable for. That's Nicole Henderson, the communications director with the New Georgia Project, one of the groups credited with helping Biden win Georgia. And so I think they're going to have to be bold on that. And even as it relates to uh, the environment, uh, there are people here, especially along our coastline, and we were just in Savannah and talking about their concern and the environment and what it means to that area. So they want to definitely see change and what needs to take place in uh, righting some of the things and wrongs that this administration does as, as it related to the environment. And then immigration reform is going to have to be key. I mean, we have a, a lot of uh, people here from the Haitian diaspora and the, and the diaspora that are um, extremely passionate about what we are doing about a, a pathway to uh, immigration in our country. So um, there is a lot on the table and we get that, but they, this administration is going to have to be aggressive in how it goes about pushing through some of these things that need to take place. Nicole isn't alone in her expectations of a new incoming president, Luis Avila. Biden has to respond uh, to the really big emergency of the pandemic uh, with a very strong and swift plan. At the same time, he has to address structural issues uh, in government and in society that have held us communities of color back for a long time. 
I believe that it is actually a unique opportunity to use the COVID programming as a way to educate Americans on how to address structural issues. You know, very clear examples is expanding the availability and accessibility of vaccinations to undocumented people or ensuring that, you know, uh, issues about the environment are actually uh, responsive uh, to the communities that are most impacted by the health impacts of the environmental issues in the, in the country. Um, that will protect the lands of sacred lands of Native American communities that you know, know that the pollution or the takeover of these lands are actually impacting the very well-beings of their communities, but also the well-beings of the cities nearby. I think that this is a very unique opportunity for Biden to look at COVID response as a way to address some of these issues, building infrastructure where it's needed the most, you know, building uh, hospitals and schools and giving access to the people who are having a harder time accessing those services, but still providing a really good response to the COVID emergency. Organizers like Luis and Nicole share the concerns of families who are waiting to see what will be done to tackle the health and economic crises brought on by COVID. It's a sentiment that Biden addressed this past week during his COVID vaccines and economic relief briefing. I'd like to talk to you about our way forward. A two-step plan of rescue and recovery. A two-step plan to build a bridge to the other side of the crisis we face to a better, stronger, more secure America. I'll lay out my first step, the American Rescue Plan that will tackle the pandemic and get direct financial assistance and relief to Americans who need it the most. I will lay out my Build Back Better Recovery Plan It'll make historic investments in infrastructure that build back better plan. Infrastructure, manufacturing, innovation, research and development, and clean energy. Investments in a caregiving economy and skills and training needed by our workers to be able to compete and win in the global economy of the coming years. Our rescue and recovery plan is a path forward with both seriousness of purpose and a clear plan with transparency and accountability, with a call for unity that is equally necessary. And unity is not some pie-in-the-sky dream. It's a practical step to getting the things we have to get done as a country get done together. As I said when it passed in December, the bipartisan COVID-19 relief package was a very important first step. I'm grateful for the Democrats, Republicans, and independent members of Congress who came together to get it done. But I said at the time, it's just a down payment. We need more action, more bipartisanship, and we need to move quickly. We need to move fast. Our rescue plan starts aggressively in order to speed up our national COVID-19 response. The vaccines offer so much hope This will be one of the most challenging operational efforts we have ever undertaken as a nation. We'll have to move heaven and earth to get more people vaccinated, to create more places for them to get vaccinated, to mobilize more medical teams to get shots in people's arms, to increase vaccine supply, and to get it out the door as fast as possible. We'll also do everything we can to keep our educators and students safe to safely reopen a majority of our K through eight schools by the end of the first 100 days. We can do this if we give the school districts 
the schools themselves, the communities, the states, the clear guidance they need, as well as the resources they need that they can't afford right now because of the economic dilemma they're in. That means more testing and transportation, additional cleaning and sanitizing services in those schools, protective equipment and ventilation systems in those schools. We need to make sure that workers who have COVID-19 symptoms are quarantined. And those who need to take care of their family members with COVID-19 symptoms should be able to stay home from work and still get paid. This will reduce the spread of the virus and make sure workers get the support they need to maintain their families. But we need about $400 billion in funding from Congress to make all of what I just said happen. It's a great deal, but I'm convinced we are ready to get this done. The very health of our nation is at stake. It's a plan that Biden wants to roll out immediately in order to provide relief for struggling families. The hope is that unlike Trump, an aggressive COVID agenda will help communities that have been most impacted by COVID. Here's Luis Avila. Above everything, the issue of uh, COVID has impacted Latino communities um, way harder than it has impacted other uh, communities around the country. Here in Arizona, for example, uh, you know, proportionally, uh, Latinos are um, being uh, sick and getting sick much more than any other populations. And this is impacting many issues that I think that the administration has to prioritize. And in conversations uh, with voters and community members, uh, they are demanding that they are addressed. I mean, beginning with the issue of healthcare and access to healthcare. Latinos, um, you know, and particularly depending on uh, the person's immigration status, don't have access to uh, high quality health care or to any health care at all. So, you know, mixed status families, for example, um, are not having um, their certainty that they will be able to go to work um, or that they'll be able to even go to the doctor. I mean, we're hearing stories of families who uh, unfortunately are not even checking themselves or are not even you know, going to the hospital, even though they might be sick because they're afraid of you know, uh, potentially having to pay an incredible amount of money for something that they feel that they can treat at home. Uh, this is, of course, very dangerous, not only because it could uh, get other people sick, but also because uh, it doesn't allow for the person to receive the proper treatment. So healthcare, it's a really critical issue for Latinos that I think this administration has to focus on expanding access to healthcare, in particular to undocumented uh, folks uh, in the Latino community, and addressing this issue of uh, people in, in places uh, where they have high risks uh, of contagion, for example, for online workers, right? A lot of our members of our community work in restaurants and construction sites and places where they're interacting with other people and, um, you know, their chances of getting infected are much, much higher. So we have to do better at actually providing financial support to families so that they don't have to expose themselves until we actually have a, a, vaccine, a vaccination accessibility for everybody. And that's just not the case. Uh, we've been delaying and dragging our feet on providing support for families and they're, ha they're forcing themselves to go to work and exposing themselves. And this is a really serious issue. Luis has a point. The U.S. government's response to the COVID crisis has been too little, too late, failing millions of Americans in the process. The lack of support is even more apparent when we look at how other countries have responded. Take the Netherlands or France, which is offering to cover 84% of the gross wage and up to 100% if a worker makes minimum wage. 
Americans are looking for increased accountability and support as Biden transitions to power. The reason there is our people are dying the way they're dying is because capitalism has taken away public hospitals, private hospitals. They, they weren't, you know, not having universal health care. All of this stuff is under the guise of capitalism. Rosa Clemente, an organizer and hip-hop scholar. The, the reason that they want everybody, all these, quote, essential workers who are really sacrificial workers, is like we got to keep it going for capitalism. The markets are dropping, so we got to make sure we're, like, trying to, quote, go to some normality. And under, the, under capitalism, there is no humanity in that. So if our movements don't really, really, truly address that, what we will continue to do is mass mobilize, react when something happens in our communities, especially about, around racial violence perpetrated by the state. You know, in, inequity keeps growing and growing and growing. And there's, we're talking about 25 million jobs lost for good. Where are those 25 million people going to be working when this global pandemic is kind of subsides a little? You know, like, where are those jobs? They're gone forever because of automation. And we're not talking about any of that. We're really not censoring workers, particularly Black, Latino, Native. We're not censoring them in the movements and conversations when workers should be the ones that are censored as they are the ones that are closest to the problems of economic inequity, which leads to many, many other disparities in our communities collectively. It's the shared relationship between capitalism and governance that raises the issue of accountability with Biden's transition to power. I don't expect it to be in any way progressive. I expect it to definitely give some things those first couple of days and then they'll get mired up in a lot of public policy. That's Rosa Clemente. Look, I think Biden's going to do some superficial, well, some good things at the beginning. I think that first day he's going to get rid of the Muslim ban. Um, he's going to tackle children who've been separated, the dehumanization of, uh, and the breakup of families. You know, but I think he's going to not be, obviously, we know about defunding the police. In fact, he thinks that there should be more federal money going towards police because he falls into that camp of, you know, if we just train police better or we deal with racial bias, that leads, you know, that'll move the police not to continue to kill black people, which is just not true. Um, I don't really know what he has planned for those that are incarcerated. I'm positive he doesn't believe in abolishing the mass incarceration system. And we also know that he is not for um, universal health care for all. You know, so how could you not be after this global uh, pandemic is, is ravaging our communities? Rosa brings up an important point. Biden isn't Trump, but he isn't necessarily progressive either. He doesn't support the Green New Deal. He's walked a fine line on fracking. And then there's his history with the 1994 crime bill and his previous tough on crime stance. Look, we didn't elect Joe Biden because he's a progressive candidate. We didn't elect Joe Biden because he's the most progressive figure in the Democratic Party. There were more progressive people in the primaries than him. But I think voters selected him because they believed that he had a chance to beat Donald Trump. Luis Avila. To be honest, we know Joe Biden. We know that he's made mistakes and he's come clean. You know, he's talked about them. You know, when he uh, made a huge mistake in going against Anita Hill in, in the appointment of Clarence Thomas or his support of the crime bill in the 90s, 
Um, I actually think that we are at a time when Joe Biden is presented with a moment where he knows that he's not a unique figure uh, governing on his own, that he has a responsibility to re respond to a really large number of us uh, that elected him and that he's going to have to show uh, the progressive values that we that elected him in the first place. So this is not about Biden. Uh, this is about us. And this is the moment to make that difference happen. You're listening to Making Contact. To learn more about our program or search other topics related to today's show, visit radioproject.org. Now back to the show. President Biden and America's Expectations. I believe, and cautiously, but I do believe that he wants to leave a lasting legacy. You know, for him to be an older white man, to have served under the first, you know, black president of the United States and then to run and to be saved by the African-American community and then to run and to be saved again by the Latino community, the Navajo Nation and African-Americans. I think it's a beautiful story. Dr. Kimberly Ellis, the communications director for A Thousand Women Strong, is hopeful about the next four years. I think that ironically enough, Joe Biden is going to um, pass legislation and do things that matter to African-Americans and not just African-Americans. And then there's Kamala Harris. And I have hope for her because she is, she's the best person for this time period. So, and then when I look at everything that Black Lives Matter, the movement did to push all of these issues to the forefront and to keep the pressure going. And like, we are, we are at like, such a precipice of opportunity that we need to keep going and to push this. And now we have a super majority in the White House and we have two people in the White House that they have a mandate and they have political will from the American people to actually fix things and change things. So I know that I'm supposed to be skeptical, but I will say that I have a lot of hope because it's all coming together. It's like the stars are aligned. And it's, and it's like now or never. And though she's optimistic, Dr. Ellis understands the political struggles ahead. For her, it's about working with a president that's more inclusive and progressive. I don't want people to underestimate what it means to actually have people that can speak in whole and complete sentences. Like we miss complete sentences, <laughs> you know? Um, it matters that he has people who are experts in their field over governmental bodies and entities that represent their expertise. I mean, I think that Donald Trump has been so damaging that we have actually forgotten that he was just putting people all over, you know, you know, putting someone who lobbied against you know, protecting the environment over the Environment Protection Agency. And that matters. You know, I mean, we talk about a new green deal. You know, I've heard people talk about a, a red, black and green deal. You know, you ain't getting no red, black and green deal under somebody like that. So I'm very grateful that we have somebody who is over the Environmental Protection Agency that we can actually talk to. So I just don't want us to forget the level of damage that Donald Trump has done, because now 
you have someone that actually takes governing seriously. And we need it so bad. We need it so bad. What Kimberly is describing is a level of political maturity that was absent during the four years of Trump. Witnessing an end to an administration that was hostile to communities of color and marginalized people across the nation, Eduardo Sainz of Mi Familia Vota. We had, for the last four years, an administration that has been closing the doors to Latinos and people of color. We had an administration that has been dismantling uh, every aspect of our democracy and uh, trying to dismantle key programs like DACA. Right now, we have an opportunity. And it's a perceived opportunity to create systemic change that has energized community leaders like Eduardo. Right now, we have an opportunity. It's a new uh, era where we are looking at having the doors of the White House open, listening, having a dialogue with our communities, with our leaders, and being able uh, to fully execute the promises that were made during the campaign, you know, because of the hard work of activism across the country, and specifically here in Arizona and in Georgia, we have control of all of the levels of government when it comes down to the Senate, the House, and the White House. Uh, there is going to be a lot of pressure uh, to make sure that the policies that our community needs are at top of the line uh, and, and, and moved in this window of opportunities. Eduardo was calling on the government to meet basic needs of the people stabilized housing, steady employment, affordable health care, needs that have become exacerbated among low-income families over the past four years of division under Trump. Now it is up to Congress to confront this egregious assault on our democracy. And after this, we're going to walk down, and I'll be there with you. We're going to walk down. We're going to walk down. Anyone you want, but I think right here, we're going to walk down to the Capitol, and we're going to cheer on our brave senators and congressmen and women, and we're probably not going to be cheering so much for some of them, because you'll never take back our country with weakness. You have to show strength, and you have to be strong. Our country has had enough. We will not take it anymore, and that's what this is all about. And to use a favorite term that all of you people really came up with, we will stop the steal. Stop the steal! Stop the steal! Stop the steal! Biden entered the White House during one of the most troubled times in our nation's history. The pandemic, economic crisis, and political division made violently apparent on the 6th of January when Trump supporters stormed the Capitol in an attempted coup. January 20th marks an inauguration unlike any before. Biden and Harris will be sworn in, surrounded by an unprecedented number of armed guards, a marker that magnifies the lack of normalcy in the nation. 
Luis Avila believes now more than ever is a time to implement structural change and address America's ugly history. I believe that this is probably the biggest challenge the United States and in larger society around the world is going to face. You know, with the growing uh, creation of our digital personas, uh, we are becoming more isolated. Uh, we're becoming um, less willing to listen to others. And that's a true, that's a reality that's happening by the design of the way that we're interacting digitally. Unfortunately, that's a reality everywhere. And I think that is a really big problem we have to tackle. I don't think that it's only on the regulation of social media platforms, which is actually something we should look into. But I also think it's in the creation of new spaces to talk about issues outside of the, or beyond the politics, or beyond um, the partisanship. You know, where moments or intersections where conversations about class and race can happen. Uh, intersections where we can think about wealth and the fact that the wealthy are becoming more wealthy and why and what policies are allowing for that to happen. Well, at the same time, those without generational wealth, those without access to capital are becoming less and less willing or able to uh, actually become uh, or do the things they want in life because they don't have access to that capital. And those are responses to real social inequities, to social problems that have existed with us by generations. And I think that we need to create spaces for those conversations outside of the political uh, uh, partisanship. We have to create spaces for that to happen um, outside of the social media platforms or using the social media platforms in a way that allows us to do that. Um, and we're going to have to address issues like capitalism that haven't served our communities well. And at the end of the day, uh, we're going to have to think of a new future, a future that doesn't have, you know, those problems that have left women behind and made, you know, only quarters of a dollar of a man or that, you know, says that black men are more likely to end up in jail by age 35 or that say that Latina women, you know, have a harder chance to actually own a home or have, you know, retirement uh, by the time they are 65. All of those things have to be addressed at the same time that we have to talk about a growing, drier economy in places where low-income families live around the country. And I think that's the challenge. That's the challenge we are going to have to grapple with, not just this party, not just this president. Rosa Clemente, an organizer and former vice presidential candidate. I believe that until the United States of America apologizes for the sin of slavery, repairs that damage via reparations, and gives Native American people a way for them to have their land back and their treaties respected, this nation will never be united. And it never has been united. It, there's been moments where leaders will bring people together to say, well, can we go here and let's, let's have, uh, I wouldn't say like a truce, but we can move forward. And I just don't know how you move forward with blatant racial attacks in, in this last four years? How do you move forward with people who are not willing to even say they're sorry or a country say we were wrong and we have to start down the path of reparations? You know, but the onus for me does not fall on black and brown people. We're not the ones out here doing this. I mean, if we were the ones, we wouldn't have even made it to the Capitol steps on January 6th. So folks have to recognize first, what, what does power actually look like? Does it look like having black and brown people in the Biden administration that are also going to be the ones they put up front 
out front to go through our communities and say, oh, let's just reconcile. If y'all just forgive what these folks have been doing for four, 20, 400 years, we can move forward. As opposed to the flip side being like, you know, no more lip service, like put up. We want to see the, the, the executive orders. I'm sure many people want to see certain public policy. You know, and I already, for me, that's already, as I said, he's been talking about bringing the country together. And every time we, it, we bring the country together, the country continues to turn its back on the majority of our people, especially when it deals with material conditions of our people and the increasing poverty in our communities. For Making Contact in Oakland, California, I'm Anita Johnson. And that's it for us this week on Making Contact. You can find a full list of credits and info on today's show on our website. That's at radioproject.org. And we'd love to hear from you. What other topics do you think we should cover? Join the conversation on Facebook. Our Twitter handle is making underscore contact. And do me a favor. Check out our Instagram at Making Contact Radio Project. I've been your host, Anita Johnson. Thanks for listening. <laughs>